Part 2, Chapter 12 of A Popular History of Astronomy During the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Carlo in San Clemente, California. A Popular History of Astronomy During the Nineteenth Century by Agnes Mary Clark. Part Two, Chapter Twelve, Stars and Nebulae, Part Four. Planetary and annular nebulae are, without exception, gaseous, as well as those termed irregular, which frequent the region of the Milky Way. Their constitution usually betrays itself to the eye by their blue or greenish color, while those yielding a continuous spectrum are of a dull white. Among the more remarkable of these are the well-known nebula in Andromeda and the great spiral in Canis Venatici, and, as a general rule, the emissions of all such nebulae as present the appearance of star clusters grown misty through excessive distance are of the same kind. It would, however, be eminently rash to conclude thence that they are really aggregations of sun-like bodies, the improbability of such an inference has been greatly enhanced by the occurrence, at an interval of a quarter of a century, of stellar outbursts in the midst of two of them. For it is practically certain that the temporary stars were equally remote with the hazy formations they illuminated. Hence, if the constituent particles of the latter be suns, the incomparable vaster orbs by which their feeble light was well-nigh obliterated must, as was argued by Mr. Proctor, have been on a scale of magnitude such as the imagination recoils from contemplating. Nevertheless, Dr. Shiner, not without much difficulty, obtained in January 1899 spectrographic prints of the Andromeda Nebula, indicative, he thought, of its being a cluster of solar stars. Sir William and Lady Huggins, on the other hand, saw, in 1897, bright intermixed with dark bands in the spectrum of the same object, and Mr. Maunder conjectures all white nebulae to be made up of sunlets in which the coronal element predominates, while chromospheric materials assert their presence in nebulae of the green variety. Among the ascertained analogies between the stellar and nebular systems is that of variability of light. On October 11, 1852, Mr. Hind discovered a small nebula in Taurus. Shakornik observed it at Marseille in 1854, but was confounded four years later to find it vanished. D'Arrest missed it October 3rd and redetected it December 29, 1861. It was easily seen in 1865 through 1866, but invisible in the most powerful instruments from 1877 to 1880. Barnard, however, made out an almost evanescent trace of it October 15, 1890, with the Great Lick Telescope, and saw it easily in the spring of 1895, while six months later it evaded his most diligent search. Then again, on September 28, 1897, the Yerkes 40-inch disclosed it to him as a mere shimmer at the last limit of visibility. 
and it came out in three diffuse patches on plates to which, on December 6th and 27th, 1899, Keeler gave prolonged exposures with the Crossley reflector. Moreover, a fairly bright adjacent nebula, perceived by O. Struve in 1868 and observed shortly afterwards by D'Arrest, has totally vanished, and was most likely only a temporary apparition. These are the most authentic instances of nebular variability. Many others have been more or less plausibly alleged. But Professor Holden's persuasion, acquired from an exhaustive study of the record since 1758, that the various parts of the Orion Nebula fluctuate continually in relative luster, has not been ratified by photographic evidence. The case of the Trifid Nebula in Sagittarius, investigated by Holden in 1877, is less easily disposed of. What is certain is that a remarkable triple star centrally situated, according to the observations of both the Herschels, 1784 through 1833, in a dark space between the three great lobes of the nebula, is now, and has been since 1839, densely involved in one of them. And since the hypothesis of relative motion is on many grounds inadmissible, the change that has apparently taken place must be in the distribution of light. One no less conspicuous was adduced by Mr. H. C. Russell, director of the Sydney Observatory. A particular bright part of the great Argo Nebula, as drawn by Sir John Herschel, has, it would seem, almost totally disappeared. He noticed its absence in 1871 using a seven-inch telescope, failed equally later on to find it with an eleven-and-a-half-inch, and his long-exposure photographs show no vestige of it. The same structure is missing from, or scarcely traceable in, a splendid picture of the nebula taken by Sir David Gill in twelve hours distributed over four nights in March 1892. An immense gaseous expanse has, it would seem, sunk out of sight. Materially it is no doubt there, but the radiance has left it. Nebulae have no ascertained proper motions. No genuine change of place in the heavens has yet been recorded for any one of them. All equally hold aloof, so far as telescopic observation shows, from the busy journeyings of the stars. This seeming immobility is partly an effect of vast distance. Nebular parallax has, up to the present, proved evanescent, a nebular parallactic drift, in response to the sun's advance through space, remains likewise imperceptible. It may hence be presumed that no nebulae occur within the sphere occupied by the nearer stars. But the difficulty of accurately measuring such objects must also be taken into account. Displacements which would be conspicuous in stars might easily escape detection in ill-defined hazy masses. Thus, the measures executed by D'Arrest in 1857 have not yet proved effective for their designed purpose of contributing to the future detection of proper motions. Some determinations made by Mr. Burnham with the Lick refractor in 1891 will ultimately afford a more critical test. He found that nearly all planetary nebulae include a sharp stellar nucleus, 
the position of which with reference to neighboring stars could be fixed no less precisely than if it were devoid of nebulous surroundings hence the objects located by him cannot henceforward shift were it only to the extent of a small fraction of a second without the fact coming to the knowledge of astronomers the spectroscope however here as elsewhere can supplement the telescope and what it has to tell it tells at once without the necessity of waiting on time to ripen results sir william huggins made in eighteen seventy four the earliest experiments on the radial movements of nebulae but with only a negative upshot none of the six objects examined gave signs of spectral alteration and it was estimated that they must have done so had they been in course of recession from or approach towards the earth by as much as twenty-five miles a second with far more powerful appliances professor keeler renewed the attempt at lick in eighteen ninety through ninety one his success was unequivocal ten planetary nebulae yielded perfectly satisfactory evidence of line-of-sight motion the swiftest traveller being the well-known greenish globe in Draco, found to be hurrying towards the earth at the rate of forty miles a second for the orion nebula a recession of about eleven miles was determined the whole of which may however very well belong to the solar system itself which by its translation towards the constellation lyra is certainly leaving the great nebula pretty rapidly behind the anomaly of seeming nebular fixity has nevertheless been removed and the problem of nebular motion has begun to be solved through the demonstrated possibility of its spectroscopic investigation keeler's were the first trustworthy determinations of radial motion obtained visually that the similar work on the stars begun at greenwich in eighteen seventy four and carried on for thirteen years remained comparatively unfruitful was only what might have been expected the instruments available there being altogether inadequate for the attainment of a high degree of accuracy the various obstacles in the way of securing it were overcome by the substitution of the sensitive plate for the eye air tremors are thus rendered comparatively innocuous and measurements of stellar lines displaced by motion with reference to fiducial lines from terrestrial sources photographed on the same plates can be depended upon within vastly reduced limits of error studies for the realization of the spectrographic method were begun by dr fogel and his able assistant dr scheiner at potsdam in eighteen eighty seven their preliminary results communicated to the berlin academy of sciences march fifteenth eighteen eighty eight already showed that the requirements for effective research in this important branch were at last about to be complied with an improved instrument was erected in the autumn of the same year and the fifty-one stars bright enough for determination with a refractor of eleven inches aperture were promptly taken in hand a list of their motions in the line of sight published in eighteen ninety two was of high value both in itself and for what it promised one noteworthy inference from the data it collected was that the eye tends under unfavorable circumstances to exaggerate the line displacements it attempts to estimate the velocities photographically arrived at were of much smaller amounts than those visually assigned 
The average speed of the Potsdam stars came out only 10.4 miles a second, the quickest among them being Aldebaran, with a recession of 30 miles a second. More lately, however, Deslandres and Campbell have determined for Eta Hercules and Zeta Cephei, respectively approaching rates of 44 and 54 miles a second. The installation in 1900 of a photographic refractor 31.5 inches in aperture, coupled with a 20-inch guiding telescope, will enable Dr. Fogel to investigate spectrographically some hundreds of stars fainter than the second magnitude, and the materials thus accumulated should largely help to provide means for a definite and complete solution of the more than secular problem of the sun's advance through space. The solution should be complete because, including a genuine determination of the sun's velocity, apart from assumptions of any kind M. Hohmann's attempt in 1885 to extract some provisional information on the subject from the radial movements of visually determined stars, gave a fair earnest of what might be done with materials of a better quality. He arrived at a goal for the sun's way, shifted eastward to the constellation Cygnus, a result congruous with the marked tendency of recently determined apexes to collect in or near Lyra, and the most probable corresponding velocity seemed to be about 19 miles a second, or just that of the Earth in its orbit. A more elaborate investigation of the same kind, based by Professor Campbell in 1900 upon the motions of 280 stars, determined with extreme precision, suffered incompleteness through lack of available data from the southern hemisphere. The outcome, accordingly, was an apex most likely correctly placed as regards right ascension, but displaced southward by some 15 degrees. The speed of 12 miles a second assigned to the solar translation approximates doubtless very closely to the truth. A successful beginning was made in nebular spectrography by Sir William Huggins, March 7, 1882. Five lines in all stamped themselves upon the plate during 45 minutes of exposure to the rays of the strange object in Orion. Of these, four were the known visible lines, and a fifth, high up in the ultraviolet at wavelength 3727, has evidently peculiar relationships as yet imperfectly apprehended. It is strong in the spectra of many planetaries. It helped to characterize the nebular metamorphosis of Nova Origae, yet failed to appear in Nova Persei. Two additional hydrogen lines, making six in all, were photographed at Tulse Hill from the Orion Nebula in 1890, and Dr. Copeland's detection in 1886 of the yellow ray D3 gave the first hint of the presence of helium in this prodigious formation. Nor are there wanting spectroscopic indications of its physical connection with the stars visually involved in it. Sir William and Lady Huggins found a plate exposed February 5, 1888, impressed with four groups of fine, bright lines, originating in the continuous light of two of the trapezium stars, but extending some way into the surrounding nebula. And Dr. Shiner argued a wider relationship from the common possession by the nebula and the chief stars in the constellation Orion, 
of a blue line, bright in the one case, dark in the others, since identified as a member of one of the helium series. The structural unity of the stellar and nebular orders in this extensive region of the sky has also, by direct photographic means, been unmistakably affirmed. The first promising autographic picture of the Orion Nebula was obtained by Draper, September 30, 1880. The marked approach towards a still more perfectly satisfactory result shown by his plates of March 1881 and 1882 was unhappily cut short by his death. Meanwhile, M. Janssen was at work in the same field from 1881 with his accustomed success. But Dr. A. Ainsley Common left all competitors far behind with a splendid picture taken January 30, 1883, by means of an exposure of 37 minutes in the focus of his three-foot silver-on-glass mirror. Photography may thereby be said to have definitely assumed the office of historiographer to the nebulae, since this one impression embodies a mass of facts hardly to be compassed by months of labor with a pencil, and affords a record of shape and relative brightness in the various parts of the stupendous object it delineates, which must prove invaluable to the students of its future condition. Its beauty and merit were officially recognized by the award of the Astronomical Society's gold medal in 1884. A second picture of equal merit, obtained by the same means, February 28, 1883, with an exposure of one hour, is reproduced in the frontispiece. The vignette includes two specimens of planetary photography. The Jupiter, with the great red spot conspicuous in the southern hemisphere, is by Dr. Common. It dates from September 3, 1879, and was accordingly one of the earliest results with his 36-inch, the direct image in which imprinted itself in a fraction of a second, and was subsequently enlarged on paper about twelve times. The exquisite little picture of Saturn was taken at Paris by Messrs. Paul and Prosper Henry, December 21, 1885, with their 13-inch photographic refractor. The telescopic image was in this case magnified eleven times previous to being photographed, an exposure of about five seconds being allowed, and the total enlargement, as it now appears, is nineteen times. A trace of the dusky ring perceptible on the original negative is lost in the print. A photograph of the Orion Nebula, taken by Dr. Roberts in 67 minutes, November 30, 1886, made a striking disclosure of the extent of that prodigious object. More than six times the nebulous area depicted on Dr. Common's plates is covered by it, and it plainly shows an adjacent nebula, separately catalogued by Messier, to belong to the same vast formation. This disposition to annex and appropriate has come out more strongly with every increase of photographic power. Plates exposed at Harvard College in March 1888 with an 8-inch portrait lens the same used in the preparation of the Draper catalogue, showed the old established fish-mouth nebula not only to involve the stars of the sword-handle, but to be in tolerably evident connection with the most easterly of the three belt stars, from which a remarkable nebulous appendage was found to proceed. A still more curious discovery was made by W. H. Pickering in 1889, 
Photographs taken in three hours from the summit of Wilson's Peak in California revealed the existence of an enormous, though faint, spiral structure, enclosing in its span of nearly 17 degrees the entire stellar and nebulous group of the belt and sword, from which it most likely, although not quite traceably, issues as if from a nucleus. A startling glimpse is thus afforded of the cosmical importance of that strange hiatus in the heavens which excited the wonder of Huygens in 1656. The inconceivable attenuation of the gaseous stuff composing it was virtually demonstrated by Mr. Ranyard. In March 1885, Sir Howard Grubb mounted for Dr. Isaac Roberts at Magull near Liverpool, his observatory has since been transferred to Crowborough in Sussex, a silver-on-glass reflector of twenty inches aperture, constructed expressly for use in celestial photography. A series of nebula pictures obtained with this fine instrument have proved highly instructive both as to the structure and extent of these wonderful objects. Above all, one of the great Andromeda nebula, to which an exposure of three hours was given on October 1, 1888. In it, a convoluted structure replaced and rendered intelligible the anomalously rifted mass seen by Bond in 1847. The effects of annular condensation appeared to have stamped themselves upon the plate, and two attendant nebulae presented the aspect of satellites already separated from the parent body and presumably revolving round it. The ring nebula in Lyra was photographed at Paris in 1886, and shortly afterwards by von Gotthard with a ten-inch reflector, and he similarly depicted in 1888 the two chief spiral and other nebulae. Photographs of the Lyra nebula taken at Algiers in 1890 and at the Vatican Observatory in 1892 were remarkable for the strong development of a central star difficult of telescopic discernment, but evidently of primary importance to the annular structure around. The uses of photography in celestial investigations become every year more manifold and more apparent. The earliest chemical star pictures were those of Castor and Vega, obtained with the Cambridge refractor in 1850 by Whipple of Boston under the direction of W. C. Bond. Double-star photography was inaugurated under the auspices of G.P. Bond, April 27, 1857, with an impression, obtained in eight seconds, of Mizar, the middle star in the handle of the plow. A series of measures from 62 similar images gave the distance and position angle of its companion with about the same accuracy attainable by ordinary micrometrical operations and the method and upshot of these novel experiments were described in three papers remarkably forecasting the purposes to be served by stellar photography. The matter next fell into the able hands of Rutherford, who completed in 1864 a fine object glass of eleven and a half inches, corrected for the ultraviolet rays, consequently useless for visual purposes. The sacrifice was recompensed by conspicuous success. A set of measurements from his photographs of nearly fifty stars in the Pleiades and their comparison with Bessel's places enabled Dr. Gould to announce, in 1866, that during the intervening third of a century, 
no changes of importance had occurred in their relative positions. And Mr. Harold Jacoby similarly ascertained the fixity of 75 of Rutherford's Atlantids between the epoch 1873 and that of Dr. Elkin's heliometric triangulation of the cluster in 1886, extending the interval to 27 years by subsequent comparisons with plates taken at Lick, September 27, 1900. Positive, however, as well as negative results have ensued from the application of modern methods to that antique group. On October 19, 1859, Wilhelm Tempel, a Saxon peasant by origin, later a skilled engraver, discovered with a small telescope, bought out of his scanty savings, an elliptical nebulosity stretching far to the southward from the star Merope. It attracted the attention of many observers, but was so often missed, owing to its extreme susceptibility to adverse atmospheric influences, as to rouse unfounded suspicions of its variability. The detection of this evasive object gave a hint, barely intelligible at the time, of further revelations of the same kind by more cogent means. A splendid photograph of 1,421 stars in the Pleiades, taken by Messrs. Henry with three hours' exposure, November 16, 1885, showed one of the brightest of them to have a small spiral nebula, somewhat resembling a strongly curved comet's tail, attached to it. The reappearance of this strange appurtenance on three subsequent plates left no doubt of its real existence, visually attested at Pokova, February 5, 1886, by one of the first observations made with the 30-inch equatorial. Much smaller apertures, however, sufficed to disclose the Maya nebula, once it was known to be there. Not only did it appear greatly extended in the Vienna 27-inch, but Messrs. Perrotin and Tholan saw it with the Nice 15-inch, and M. Kammermann of Geneva, employing special precautions, with a refractor of only ten inches aperture. The advantage derived by him for bringing it into view from the insertion into the eyepiece of a uranium film gives, with its photographic intensity, valid proof that a large proportion of the light of this remarkable object is of the ultraviolet kind. The beginning thus made was quickly followed up. A picture of the Pleiades, procured at Magol in 89 minutes, October 23, 1886, revealed nebulous surroundings to no less than four leading stars of the group, namely Alcyone, Electra, Merope, and Maya. And a second impression, taken in three hours on the following night, showed further that the nebulosity extends in streamers and fleecy masses till it seems almost to fill the spaces between the stars and to extend far beyond them. The coherence of the entire mixed structure was, moreover, placed beyond doubt by the visibly close relationship of the stars to the nebulous formations surrounding them in Dr. Roberts' striking pictures. Thus, Goldschmidt's notion that all the clustered Pleiades constitute, as it were, a second Orion trapezium in the midst of a huge formation of which Temple's nebula is but a fragment has been to some extent verified. Yet it seemed fantastic enough in 1863. Then, in 1888, the Messrs. Henry gave exposures of four hours each to several plates which exhibited on development some new features of the entangled nebulae. 
The most curious of these was the linking together of stars by nebulous chains. In one case, seven aligned stars appeared strung on a silvery filament like beads on a rosary. The row of stars, so often noticed in the sky, may then be concluded to have more than an imaginary existence. Of the 2,326 stars recorded in these pictures, a couple of hundred among the brightest can, at the outside, be reckoned as genuine Pleiades. The great majority were relegated, by Pickering's and Stratonoff's counts of the stellar populace, in and near the cluster to the position of outsiders from it. They are undistinguished denizens of the abysmal background upon which it is projected. Investigations of its condition were carried a stage further by Barnard. On November 14, 1890, he discovered visually, with the Lick refractor, a close nebulous satellite to Merope, photographs of which were obtained by Keeler in 1898. It appears in them of a rudely pentagonal shape, a prominent angle being directed towards the adjacent star. Finally, an exposure of ten hours made by Bernard with the Willard lens indicated the singular fact that the entire group is embedded in a nebulous matrix, streaky outliers of which blur a wide surface of the celestial vault. The artist's conviction of the reality of what his picture showed was confirmed by negatives obtained by Bailey at Arequipa in 1897 and by H.C. Wilson at Northfield, Minnesota, in 1898. With the Ealing three-foot reflector, sold by Dr. Common to Mr. Crossley and by him presented to the Lick Observatory, Professor Keeler took in 1899 a series of beautiful and instructive nebula photographs. One of the trifid may be singled out as of particular excellence, an astonishing multitude of new nebulae were revealed by trial exposures with this instrument. A conservative estimate gave 120,000 as the number coming within its scope. Moreover, the majority of those actually recorded were of an unmistakable spiral character, and they included most of Sir John Herschel's double nebula, previously supposed to exemplify the primitive history of binary stellar systems. Dr. Max Wolf's explorations with a six-inch Vogtländer lens in 1901 emphatically reaffirmed the inexhaustible wealth of the nebular heavens. In one restricted region, midway between Presepi and the Milky Way, he located 135 nebula where only three had, until then, been catalogued. And he counted 108 such objects clustering round the star 31 Coma Berenices, and so closely that all might be occulted together by the moon. The general photographic catalogue of nebula which Dr. Wolf had begun to prepare will thus be a most voluminous work. The history of celestial photography at the Cape of Good Hope began with the appearance of the great comet of 1882. No special apparatus was at hand, so Sir David Gill called in the services of a local artist, Mr. Alice of Mowbray, with whose camera, strapped to the observatory equatorial, pictures of conspicuous merit were obtained. But their particular distinction lay in the multitude of stars begemming the background. See plate 3. The sight of them at once opened to the royal astronomer a new prospect. 
he had already formed the project of extending Agelende's Durchmusterung from the point where it was left by Schoenfeld to the southern pole, and his ideas regarding the means of carrying it into execution crystallized at the needle touch of the cometary experiments. He resolved to employ photography for the purpose. The exposure of plates was accordingly begun under the care of Mr. Ray Woods in 1885, and in less than six years the sky, from 19 degrees of south latitude to the pole, had been covered in duplicate. Their measurement and the preparation of a catalogue of the stars imprinted upon them were generously undertaken by Professor Kaptein, and his laborious task has at length been successfully completed. The publication in 1900 of the third and concluding volume of the Cape Photographic Durchmusterung placed at the disposal of astronomers a photographic census of the heavens fuller and surer than the corresponding visual enumeration executed at Bonn. It includes 454,875 stars, nearly to the tenth magnitude, and their positions are reliable to about one second of arc. The production of this important work was thus a result of the Cape Comet pictures, yet not the most momentous one. They turned the scale in favor of recourse to the camera when the Messrs. Henry encountered, in their continuation of Chacornac's half-finished enterprise of ecliptical charting, sections of the Milky Way defying the enumerating efforts of eye and hand. The perfect success of some preliminary experiments made with an instrument constructed by them expressly for the purpose was announced to the Academy of Sciences at Paris, May 2, 1885. By its means, stars estimated as of the sixteenth magnitude clearly recorded their presence and their places, and the enormous increase of knowledge involved may be judged of from the fact that, in a space of the Milky Way in Cygnus, two degrees fifteen minutes by three degrees, where one hundred seventy stars had been mapped by the old laborious method, about five thousand stamped their images on a single Henry plate. These results suggested the grand undertaking of a general photographic survey of the heavens, and Gill's proposal, June 4, 1886, of an international congress for the purpose of setting it on foot, was received with acclamation and promptly acted upon. Fifty-six delegates of seventeen different nationalities met in Paris, April 16, 1887, under the presidentship of Admiral Mouchet, to discuss measures and organize action. They resolved upon the construction of a photographic chart of the whole heavens, comprising stars of a fourteenth magnitude to the surmised number of twenty millions, to be supplemented by a catalogue framed from plates of comparatively short exposure, giving start to the eleventh magnitude. These will probably amount to about one million and a quarter. For procuring both sets of plates, instruments were constructed precisely similar to that of Messrs. Henry, which is a photographic refractor, 13 inches in aperture, and 11 feet focus, attached to a guiding telescope of 11 inches aperture, corrected, of course, for the visual rays. Each place covers an area of four square degrees, and since the series must be duplicated to prevent mistakes, about 22,000 plates will be needed for the chart alone. The task of preparing them was apportioned among 18 observatories scattered over the globe, from Mexico to Melbourne. 
but three in South America having become disabled or inert, were replaced in 1900 by those at Cordoba, Montevideo, and Perth, Western Australia. Meanwhile, the publication of results has begun and is likely to continue for at least a quarter of a century. The first volume of measures from the Potsdam catalogue plates was issued in 1899, and its successors, if on the same scale, must number nearly 400. Moreover, 96 heliogravure enlargements from the Paris chart plates, distributed in the same year, supplied a basis for the calculation that the entire atlas of the sky, composed of similar sheets, will form a pile 30 feet high and 2 tons in weight. It will, however, possess an incalculable scientific value, for millions of stars can be determined by its means from their imprinted images with an accuracy comparable to that attainable by direct meridian observations. One of the most ardent promoters of the scheme, it may be expected to realize, was Admiral Mouchet, the successor of Le Verrier in the direction of the Paris Observatory. But it was not granted to him to see the fruition of his efforts. He died suddenly June 25, 1892. Although not an astronomer by profession, he had been singularly successful in pushing forward the cause of the science he loved, while his genial and open nature won for him wide personal regard. He was replaced by M. Tisserand, whose mathematical eminence fitted him to continue the traditions of Delaunay and Le Verrier. But his career, too, was unhappily cut short by an unforeseen death on October twentieth, 1896 and the more eminent among the many qualifications of his successor, M. Maurice Louis, are of the practical kind. The sublime problem of the construction of the heavens has not been neglected amid the multiplicity of tasks imposed upon the cultivators of astronomy by its rapid development. But data of a far higher order of precision and indefinitely greater in amount than those at the disposal of Herschel or Struve must be accumulated before any definite conclusions on the subject are possible. The first organized effort towards realizing this desideratum was made by the German Astronomical Society in 1865, two years after its foundation at Heidelberg. The original program consisted in the exact determination of the places of all Agelander's stars to the ninth magnitude, exclusive of the polar zone, from the reobservation of which, say, in the year 1950, astronomers of two generations hence may gather a vast store of knowledge, directly of the apparent motions, indirectly of the mutual relations binding together the suns and systems of space. Thirteen observatories in Europe and America joined in the work, now virtually terminated. Its scope was, after its inception, widened to include southern zones as far as the Tropic of Capricorn, this having been rendered feasible by Schoenfeld's extension, 1875-1885, of Augelander's survey. 30,000 additional stars thus taken in were allotted in zones to five observatories. Another important undertaking of the same class is the reobservation of the 47,300 stars in Lalande's Histoire Celeste. Begun under Arago in 1855, its upshot has been the publication of the great Paris catalogue, issued in eight volumes between 1887 and 1902. From a careful study of their secular changes in position, Monsieur Bosset has already derived the proper motions of a couple of thousand out of nearly 50,000 stars enumerated in it.
End of Part 2, Chapter 12, Stars and Nebulae, Part 4. Recording by Aaron Carlo in San Clemente, California.